Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. We wanted to let you know that our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief, is now the DSR Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the top stories from the war in Ukraine, plus all the top foreign policy stories from around the world in under 10 minutes a day. Additionally, members receive an evening DSR Daily Brief newsletter with updates from earlier stories, plus any new developments occurring throughout the day. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive these and other member benefits, including bonus content for all of our shows, access to our member Slack community, and more. The DSR Daily Brief is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast. As you know, on Wednesdays, we have one-on-ones with authors and thinkers that we think you ought to be hearing from. Uh, In this case, it's a special pleasure because the person we're speaking to is an old, old friend, Jay Newman, who is a former hedge fund portfolio manager for Elliott Management, who is also a novelist, whose new book is called Under Money, a novel. I didn't know you were a novelist, Jay. I didn't know either. (laughs) (laughs) But it turned turned out I had at least one in me. When did the novel come out? Uh, It came out at the end of January. Really? Really? What's the thrust of the novel? Well, it's, um, it explores, there are so many ideas that, that uh, I wanted to explore after I retired from hedge fund life. You're far too uh, young to have retired, Jay. Well, it's uh, semi-retired then. I mean, I'm still chasing deadbeat countries, so haven't given up that hobby. But uh, when I started thinking about what I might write, and people were encouraging me to write about my career, I realized that would just be a snooze. And fiction would be a better way to, to explore some of these thoughts. So I started with the kernel of one guy that I had met years ago at Morgan Stanley, who had been in the military, then he came to the street to make some money, then he went back to the military. And we always had these talks about how the country was going to hell and what we would do to fix it. So I built it around him. His name uh, was Don, is Don, like uh, the protagonist in the book, the only heroic, truly heroic figure in the book, Um, and his cohort. And his cohort or ensemble try to figure out how they can get one of their their group elected to the presidency. And they realize that, and this is the slippery slope, which you and I are all too familiar with, you want to do good, but then you realize you need money to do it. And to get money, you have to compromise. And the first thing they do, and this isn't much of a spoiler because it happens in the first chapter, they steal $2.4 billion. And then they realize they need a vehicle to feed that back into the political system. They take over a corrupt hedge fund, 
And that hedge fund is attached to a Russian mercenary. And that's the basic structure. That doesn't sound like fiction to me. <laughs> you know, it's sad, sad. Uh, reality caught up to fiction much quicker than I thought it would. Yeah, well, I, I really look forward to, to reading it. You know, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I actually sent you an email probably three weeks before the email that led to this, this podcast, but it bounced back because I had some old address of yours because I was thinking about what was happening with all these sanctions. And uh, uh, subsequently, I saw uh, something by you uh, in the FT, comment by you in the FT, uh, which was talking a little bit about how tough it is to do sanctions when so many people, and I'm paraphrasing oligarchs, uh, have so many means of avoiding payment. And as you indicated a moment ago, uh, our listeners may not follow this stuff as closely as some. You developed a reputation uh, over a period of time for going after countries that were trying to sidestep debts that they owed to Wall Street. And whereas this pissed off some people because they were like, well, these are poor countries and they shouldn't have to pay their debts. Uh, you pointed out that if poor countries didn't ultimately pay their debts, then nobody lends to them anymore. And if they don't get lent to anymore, then they can't grow. And, you know, you had some substantial successes in all of this. And you must, as you look at, at, at what's going on in Russia today, and I'd like to sort of break it into two pieces, one having to do with sanctions, one having to do with Russian debt, since they seem to be, well, they seem to actually have already defaulted in some terms, but heading towards an even bigger default. In terms of the sanctions, there's a whole industry out there, isn't there? You know, the, with this Wall Street industry that you've lived in and, and, and perhaps that you wrote about here, that you know, helps billionaires make sure that their money is hard to reach, right? The um, sanctions is a huge, um, well, it's, it's, there are so many levels to, um, to what you just said, David. Um, the first is that sanctions don't actually work if your goal is regime change. So we've had sanction regimes in place against North Korea for decades, against Cuba for decades, against Iran for decades, Venezuela for almost a decade, and we still have the same regimes there. So I think the first, my first point is that sanctions don't work. And, and the reason they don't work is because you can, you can use them to, in the early stages, bomb a country uh, and its economy and its currency, bomb it out. But very quickly, that whole industry that you referred to, which is the industry of facilitators, bankers, lawyers, accountants around the world, coalesces and figures out how to help the sanctioned parties avoid sanctions. And there are, there are many, many ways to do it. I think the, one of the big surprises of what we've done in the case of Russia, and it'll backfire, we could talk about how it will backfire, is that we unleashed a, a complement of sanctions that no one has ever seen before, including seizing uh, foreign reserves. That is a, a radical step. But I think what that's going to do is going to, it's going to push the industry to be even more ruthlessly aggressive about how they bury assets. And we'll see a whole industry of, of um, you know, the old saying, the best, the best friend you can have is one with a boat. Well, no <laughs> oligarch is ever going to own a boat again. They're all going to have plenty of friends with boats and planes and trains 
uh, and private islands. They just aren't going to have it in their own name. And there's been a concerted effort on the part of the U.S. Treasury to penetrate some of those multi-layers of, of companies, which, by the way, are formed in places like Nevada and Wyoming and Delaware, not just in the Cayman Islands and Malta. I understand South Dakota's gotten kind of big in this business. It's, it's huge. Who would have thought that um, for money laundering, South Dakota is the perfect place? Who would have thought that? <laughs> on, the, on the other hand, having the dumbest governor in America helps, but go on. <laughs> well, the other thing about sanctions is that I think we have, the U.S. has sanctions, and this is, I'm entering your province very rapidly, and I'm going to hand the baton right back to you. We've got sanctions in the U.S. against 10 thousand people and entities around the world in something like 57 countries. I personally think that's a crazy way and a crazy, lazy and ineffectual way to run a foreign policy. This should not be sanctioned, should not be a primary tool because they're just, they're just going to get ignored and, and violated. You actually know sort of what the financial pressure points are on countries better than most people. And, you know, this administration, I think, you know, faced a, a, a real conundrum. Russia violated international law in going into Ukraine. They've now committed serial war crimes and crimes against humanity. And yet we don't want to go to war against Russia. We can build up our defenses in NATO as we've done. We can support the Ukraine military as we've done. We can limit their ability to trade in certain products, as we've tried to do. We haven't been as successful as we hoped we would be in things like oil and gas. And then there are these other financial tools, whether it's kicking them out of the global clearing system or seizing assets overseas or going after the assets of the friends of Putin. You know, I think they're, they're trying to sort of you know, identify every pressure point they've got. What pressure points in your mind economically work? I think they all work in the short term, but I think in the medium and long term, there'll be ways around them. Just let's just take an example of the U.S. The U.S. dollar. And this, I think, is a, is, a, is a particularly concerning element in sanctions. If you are part of and, and and I forget what the exact number is, but the number of countries that have actually signed on to sanctions is relatively small. I mean, most of the planet has not. So China has not signed on. India has not signed on. Obviously, Middle East has not signed on. Africa, not. So there's a a whole, in a way, it's like a reformulation of the non-aligned movement saying, we're not, you know, we're not aligned with these. And all those countries are going to be prepared to trade with sanctioned entities. They do trade with sanctioned entities. I mean, it's not that Russia hasn't been able to sell its oil. Of course, they, they sell a lot of gas still to, to Europe because Europe at this point simply needs it. But they, they're selling their oil uh, by the boatload to India, to China at a discount. They're not able to clear in dollars and it's hard to clear in rupees and uh, renminbi. But eventually those, those um, trading platforms will become bigger and more robust. And I think we, you know, with this with this level of sanctions, we're driving people to find other ways to trade, other currencies to trade in, and other way, places to put assets. What I would do, just you know, thinking out loud as a, as a writer of fiction, 
I would not, obviously you wouldn't hold half your reserves at the BIS and at the Fed. Because those, those 300 billion that were frozen, I think that's gone. They're going to be used to pay claims against Russia. I know we'll come to discuss those kinds of claims. They'll, use to, they, they'll be used as they should be to pay reparations you know, that, are, that are due to Ukraine. But in the future, if you, were, if you were Russia, wouldn't you rather have a stockpile of precious minerals, rare earths? It's not the most efficient way to hold your, uh, your reserves, but it's certainly safer. And what about other currencies? I think there are, I think that other currencies and to some extent cryptocurrencies are going to be uh, a vogue. But right now, there's no, there's no currency like the dollar or like the euro that could absorb these vast sums and, and be readily tapped. So it's problematic in the short term. And you know, this question for you, when is, when is China going to let its currency float and attempt to trot it out there as reserve currency? Because that's the, that's the one economy that could really make a difference if they can figure out how to do that. Well, they seem to be creeping in that direction. I certainly see that as an objective of theirs because I, you know, they have a stated objective to counterbalance the United States, to be seen as an equal of the United States. And of course, one of the great sources of U.S. power is the fact that the dollar is the one predominant reserve currency right now and that all the other reserve currencies of the past have faded. And so there's a, a void. And, you know, you would certainly expect, I'm sure, I mean, you, again, this is your world more than mine, but I, you would certainly expect that uh, there'll be a lot of takers for that because I, I use the same term you do about this sort of new non-aligned movement. I think we are in, as of February 24th, the new Cold War era. And there are a lot of people who don't want to play in that game. As black and white as we may see it, they don't want to do that. And I, you know, I think there's a, a moral deficit there, but foreign policy is not often or not always or too infrequently based on moral calculus, right? It's based on national self-interest. And the national self-interest, a lot of the countries you mentioned, is to work with both sides. And so, you know, I, I think I think that's where we're going. But do you, do you think right now there's, you know, people in banks and accounting firms and law firms making money, helping oligarchs avoid sanctions? Yes. I don't, I don't think there's, there's any doubt about that. I think that the assets that have been frozen that have gotten a lot of very high profile, real estate, boats, planes, I mean, those are all, but if you think about the, the way people, wealthy people deploy their wealth, I mean, houses and, and toys are just a small percentage. So there's still a huge, huge, uh, you know, part of that iceberg of oligarch wealth that's floating under the surface. This is, this is, if you will, the under money. It's the money you don't see, but you know it's there because you see the effects of it on people and events. And that money is hidden very, very deeply uh, in, in shell companies. And it bubbles to the surface, as we know, in, in places that are unsurprising, London real estate, New York real estate. And I think a lot of those major markets, Paris real estate, Dubai real estate, it's all, it's all fodder for that industry of asset protection. I have a question for you because you touched on this. And it's a question of declaration of war. Haven't we declared war on Russia with our economic sanctions? 
Putin has said that we have. He said we're we're now at war, aren't we? Technically, of course, we're not, because declaration of war is something that has to follow a certain process, go through the Congress, be signed into a, a law, and and we haven't gotten there. And in fact, most of the wars that we have fought since World War II have not involved a declaration of war because that carries with it a whole host of, of, of burdens. And, you know, prior to this war, the Russians were, you know, masters at what you would call fighting in the gray zone. You know, the little green men going into Ukraine without insignia on their uniforms. You know, that seems kind of childish almost, but they were like, well, they're not ours, you know, even though they, they clearly were. Cyber conflict is under the radar. You talk about under money, that's kind of under war, right? You know, where it's sort of happening, but it's not happening. It's deniable. I think in, the, in this case, what we are in is something that's much more akin to what we were in, which is Cold War. And, uh, you know, in that case, there, the world is bifurcated. We have another side. We see it as kind of zero sum. And uh, we're trying to strengthen our defenses and our alliances. And uh, I think we're in a proxy war in Ukraine, whether we like it or like want to characterize it that way or not. And I also think that it's fair to say that this was unprovoked. Russia attacked Ukraine without basis and in violation of international law. And so a lot of what the West is doing could be seen as defensive, in defense of the international system, as opposed to offensive. And you may, again, think that's a, a subtle distinction or it's a nuance, but, but, but I think it's important. We didn't ask for the situation, and we seek to end it by placing pressure on Putin. The reason I'm so interested in, in what you're saying here is we have some economic tools. They will place some pressure for the short term. But what you're saying is they are kind of wasting assets and that the pressure we place in the short term will be less useful to us. And so unless we put more pressure on the battlefield or other things to expedite a solution, we're going to find ourselves weaker or our hand weaker in six months. Is that accurate? That's exactly right, because these Russia will find ways around and look, I think there's no question that the scale of these sanctions not only was unprecedented, it was unanticipated by Russia. Otherwise, they wouldn't have left all that money lying around. But over the next six months to 18 months, the efficacy of these sanctions will have dissipated. Your point about war, Cold War, I, I, I agree with that. Of course, there's no declaration. And of course, we needed to do something. And I'm sure we're going to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I sense the subtext in your comment there. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's right. But, I, you know, I think there are multiple reasons for that. And it's not simply exploiting Ukrainians. It's that the prospect of, you know, one American getting involved in this war is, opens up a whole other kettle of fish and one NATO soldier getting involved in this war. One Slovakian private dies in this war. And because of Article 5 of NATO, we are in a global conflict of a scale we haven't seen since World War II. This is the point we take a break in the show. 
We say thanks very much to everybody in the general public who's been listening. And we encourage you, uh, if you want to listen to all of our episodes from beginning to end, to become a member. And if you go to the dsrnetwork.com, sign on, become a member. Uh, you get to listen to all the bonus content. In this conversation, we're going to move on and talk a little bit about Russian default and and, and where the, the Russian economy goes from here. I think it's going to be really interesting. For those of you who can't join, thanks very much. And, and we'll see you with our next podcast tomorrow, actually, which we're going to talk about uh, something I wrote about in the Daily Beast yesterday, which has to do with what happens if the Russians use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. But until then, if you're leaving, thanks. And for those of you who are members, hang on, we'll be right back.